This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. This week, hand me the six part one, the play that is so bad everyone tries to pretend Shakespeare didn't write it, just so we don't have to read it. Presumptuous vassals! Are you not ashamed with this immodest, clamorous outrage to trouble and disturb the king and us? I see no reason, if I wear this rose, that anyone should therefore be suspicious I'm more inclined to Somerset than York. France, thou shalt rule this treason with thy tears, if Talbot but survive thy treachery. Say, gentle princess, would you not suppose your bondage happy to be made a queen? To be a queen in bondage is more vile than as a slave in base servility. Alright, so I'm almost positive that you did not ever have to study Henry VI Part One in school, so don't feel bad if you don't know the story. In any case, I'm going to give it to you here right now. Don't worry, it won't be that long. This is your one-minute summary. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Alright, let's start the timer and go. All is rotten in the state of England. The king is dead. The new king's not that good. And France has a tough new soldier named Joan of Arc, who talks to God. War hero John Talbot is released in a prisoner exchange and starts fighting the French and even thwarts a kidnapping attempt by the treacherous Countess of Auvergne. Back in England, the newly crowned King Henry VI has to deal with warring factions in his own court. Henry's grandfather stole the crown, and when Richard Plantagenet learns that he is the rightful heir, it sets into motion a series of intrigues that creates dissent in the court. Flowers get involved. If you're for Henry, you wear a red rose, and if you're for Richard, you wear a white one. Joan of Arc and the French decimate the English, but eventually they are defeated, though Talbot is killed in the process. Joan, meanwhile, is burned as a witch. The Duke of Suffolk falls in love with Margaret, a French princess, and plots to make her queen so the two of them can manipulate the king. Henry VI agrees to the marriage, which only angers others in the court, setting the stage for more rebellion and coups, but for those, you'll have to wait for Henry VI, part two. Often maligned, not just in this century, but in all of them, Henry VI Part I is considered to be such a bad play that there's a popular theory that Shakespeare didn't write it. I suspect the theory was developed more to spare the scholar than out of any real concern for Shakespeare's ego. If we dismiss Henry VI Part I from the canon, then we've also dismissed the need to examine it. By modern standards, Henry VI Part I is not a well-made play, and since the play was being condemned as far back as 1787, we can assume it wasn't very good by earlier standards either. Shakespeare's earliest history, the play cuts across the stage like an oversized sword. It's large and unwieldy, with a great big canvas and a cavalcade of historical stars. Sadly, there are no main characters. Henry V is the star of Henry V, but his son isn't the hero of Henry VI. If this play belongs to anyone, it's Talbot and Joan of Arc, but they're both dead long before the play ends, by which time Shakespeare has turned to setting the scene for Henry VI Part II. The effect is one which only the modern playgoer would be familiar with. We are, after all, in an era where Hollywood ensures that one movie only exists in order to set up the next. This is, in essence, what is happening by the time we arrive, exhausted and more than a little bored, into the final act of Henry VI Part I. Now, Titus Adronicus was maligned for many years, and it's currently enjoying a renaissance. So while I suppose it's possible that Henry VI will one day be rehabilitated, 
I really don't think it'll be anytime soon. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that just as Two Gentlemen of Verona contains elements of nearly all the Shakespearean comedies to come, Henry VI Part I is a prophecy of the histories he would someday write. We like to think of Shakespeare as the mad genius who spat up brilliant plays without much effort, but Henry VI Part I suggests that Shakespeare was the sort of artist who tinkered with ideas for a long period of time until he got them right. Shakespeare is the sort of artist who let us see his work. When you watch the Henry VI trilogy, you're actually seeing the playwright become a better writer right before your eyes. No, he didn't manage to fix Henry VI Part I itself, but many of the ideas he explores in this play will return in others, in more glorious forms. Herschel Baker said that Henry VI trilogy has, quote, prompted more scholarship than admiration, end quote. But I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I think there's much to admire in Henry VI Part I, and if I was given the choice between a live production of this, or, say, The Merchant of Venice, I would choose this every time. Henry VI Part I is actually Part V of the Henriad, a eight-play arc that begins with Richard II and, like the Chronicles of Narnia, was written out of order. Now, some scholars use the term Henriad to refer to the first four plays in the series, but all eight plays are part of the same magnificent epic that, for all its occasional failings, is still a monumental achievement in English playwriting. Shakespeare compressed 85 years of history into eight nights of the theater. And really, how many playwrights can say that? At the heart of these plays is the tale of Richard II, who is rebelled against and resigns his crown. Richard II had named Edmund Mortimer as his legal heir, but after his deposition, the crown was given to Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. His grandson is the eponymous Henry VI, but once he loses support, people start talking about giving the crown back to Edmund Mortimer's heirs. For those unfamiliar with English history, it doesn't help that Shakespeare sticks this explanation for the War of the Roses in the middle of the third act of Henry VI Part One. This is just one of the things that makes the play so difficult for the modern ear. But at the center of the Henriad is a pretty intriguing question about royalty and the divine right of kings, something which would have been of paramount interest in Shakespeare's time since his queen was the daughter of Henry VIII, who caused all sorts of problems with lineage, what with his many divorces, beheadings, and wives. To whittle it down to a single question, who has the right to rule, and from where does he or she get that right? Shakespeare addresses this question almost at once in the first part of Henry VI. It's rare for Shakespeare to sweep us from one kingdom to another, but he does it here, taking us to France in the second scene of the play, where King Charles suddenly has to deal with a pesky girl who is hearing voices from God. You can't blame Shakespeare for appropriating Joan of Arc, that French heroine who was too interesting dramatically to be ignored. Everyone else has appropriated her over the years. George Bernard Shaw would devote a whole play to her story, and there's been enough dramatic literature on Joan of Arc that my sister was able to devote an entire master's thesis to the subject. Shakespeare's Joan of Arc has spit and fire, and she's clearly meant to be the villain of the piece, along with all of her warring French. Even this early on, it's easy to imagine Shakespeare's quill quivering with joy as he wrote Joan. Villains would always be Shakespeare's specialty, and he's getting his feet wet with Joan, even if she never quite manages to leap all the way into three dimensions. She also adopts a comic book mentality at times, especially when, during her first fight with Talbot, she spares him for no reason other than Shakespeare wanted her to. Talbot, farewell. Thy hour is not yet come. 
I must go victual Orléans forthwith. Oh, take me, if thou canst. I scorn thy strength. Shakespeare, to his credit, leaves it open to interpretation whether or not Joan was actually talking to God, whether or not her visions were real. In the fifth act, she is visited by spirits, but by then it's too late, for we all know her hour has come. Now, it's possible to interpret the visions as being real, but it's also possible to interpret the moment as a delusion. Shakespeare will return to this too in Richard III, Macbeth, and Julius Caesar. There, the ghosts appear to only one person, allowing us to debate whether the spirit actually exists or is a product of a maddened mind. It's significant that he does not do this in Hamlet. Lots of people see the ghost of Hamlet's father. Hamlet is many things, but he is not crazy, something Shakespeare took great pains to explain. Now, my gut tells me that Shakespeare wanted the ghost to be a delusion, for it would have been political to present Joan's visions as delusions, so he could paint the French as gullible dupes who had been conned by a little girl. Although in the end, I think the reality of the visions don't matter. Whether you're talking about Joan, Richard III, Macbeth, or Julius Caesar, they believe they are seeing the ghosts, and that's what counts. In Shakespeare's history, the French victories have less to do with Joan or her spiritual discussions than with the bickering between the English lords. Joan of Arc is in many ways the perfect enemy for the English because she has what the English lack, conviction. Time and again throughout the Henriad, the English scheme, plot, betray, and go back on their word. Shakespeare demonstrates this various times in Henry VI Part One. The Bishop of Winchester betrays Henry, the Duke of Burgundy betrays Talbot, and meanwhile everyone keeps fighting about their favorite colored rose. Or, if you want this explanation in a much more poetic way, let's see what the Duke of Exeter has to say. Aye, we may march in England or in France, not seeing what is likely to ensue. This late dissension, grown betwixt the peers, burns under faint ashes of forged love and will at last break out into a flame, as festered members rot, but by degree, till bones and flesh and sinews fall away, so will this base and envious discord breed. See, Joan of Arc is certain of Charles and God. The English have more doubts, and this is what propels them throughout the entire Henriad. Even when they give someone the crown, there's always someone else who's certain they've made the wrong choice. Productions that edit Joan of Arc's storyline, as many invariably do, run the risk of denying audiences this great juxtaposition. Shakespeare's England was a time when rebellion was always possible. In just a few short years after writing Henry VI, Queen Elizabeth would put down that scheming Earl of Essex. Shakespeare, loyal subject that he was, uses Henry VI to suggest that the true danger of rebellion is that it makes a country vulnerable to its enemies. Had all the lords of Henry VI's court chosen the same colored rose, their problems in France could have been avoided. Henry VI Part One introduces us to Sir John Falstaff, something which will confuse anyone who doesn't have access to the internet. This Sir John is not to be confused with the one who appears later in Shakespeare's plays. That particular Sir John died in Henry V. Shakespeare was actually staying pretty close to popular history, though, since Sir John Falstaff, that's F-A-L-S-T-O-F-F-E, did indeed fight against the French during the 100 Years' War. 
Historians today differ on whether Sir John was a coward or a pragmatist, but in Shakespeare's day, he was a famed coward. Shakespeare was no revisionist. Sensitive to reputations, he presented Falstaff as a coward who, along with all the squabbling British lords, is to blame for the failures of Sir John Talbot. See, Talbot was a hero in Shakespeare's day, known for valor in the time of Henry V. When we first meet John Talbot, he is coming back from being imprisoned with the French, where he was met, quote, with scoffs and scorns and contumilious taunts, end quote. Posterity has sided with the French when it comes with poor Talbot, whose entire storyline is often cut or heavily reduced. Shakespeare seems to have had better hopes for Talbot, devoting much of the play to him, but watching these scenes makes it easy to sympathize with all those clever people who want so desperately for Henry VI Part I to be the work of some dullard and not the immortal bard. When Talbot goes off to the wily Countess of Auvergne, we feel we're watching an interpolation smuggled in from another play. Talbot may have sustained Shakespeare's interest, but he can't sustain our own. He is poorly written, and not just because his poetry isn't as good as Hamlet's. Talbot has no moments of introspection, and spends most of his time either shouting at the French, rallying his troops, or moaning over the dead Duke of Salisbury. Now this last obsession could be notable if we could understand it, but Salisbury dies far too quickly for us to understand why Talbot keeps bringing up his name. When Talbot's son appears, it is late into the fourth act, and only then do we get a glimpse into the war hero's interior life. Young John Talbot, I did send for thee to tutor thee in stratagems of war, that Talbot's name might be in thee revived. But oh, malignant and ill-boding stars, now thou art come unto a feast of death, a terrible an unavoided danger, therefore, dear boy, mount on my swiftest horse, and I'll direct thee how thou shalt escape by sudden flight. Come! Dally not! Be gone! When Talbot and his son die in each other's arms a few scenes later, Shakespeare wants us to care, but we can't quite manage it. See, Shakespeare had a problem. He needed to make his character real and breathe in three dimensions. But at the same time, he needed to lionize a figure who was a hero in his audience's eyes. He would have the same problem with Henry V, but there he would succeed admirably, probably because by the time he got around to writing about Henry, he was a much better writer. Talbot, unfortunately, never quite manages to rise above the page. A clever actor could help, but how many get the chance? As I said, most productions chop Talbot down to size, if only so they can get us to Queen Margaret, who is, in many ways, the real reason the entire play occurs. Shakespeare tries to tie Talbot's story into the story of Henry VI himself, but their connection is tenuous. They only meet once in the entire play, after which Henry, to settle a dispute in his court, dons the wrong colored rose and symbolically alienates the very people he should be trying to unite. This only provokes the various feuds, and when Talbot sends for support from the battlefield, it never arrives. See, Henry VI is a good man with a weak stomach, a king who has the crown but never seems to deserve it. He isn't completely inept, but he is easily swayed by others, and lacks the very thing that everyone else does, conviction. You can see where Shakespeare was going with this. Henry VI lacks conviction in himself, and so everyone else lacks conviction in him. His weak nature will make him susceptible to the charms of Margaret, that she-wolf of France, who will so thoroughly dominate Henry VI Part Two and Three. When we first meet her, she is already a jewel bright enough to catch the Duke of Suffolk's eye. He falls in love with her, 
at once. Fairest beauty, do not fear, no fly, for I will touch thee but with reverent hands and lay them gently on thy tender side. I kiss these fingers for eternal peace. Who art thou? Say that I may honor thee. Margaret, my name. Margaret instantly returns the affection, and together they plot to make her queen. The Machiavellian nature of their scheme is impressive, and at once Margaret is a vast improvement over Joan, and indeed all the female characters who have come before her. The competition, of course, isn't exactly fierce. She's competing with Julia and Sylvia from Two Gentlemen of Verona, and a certain shrew from Padua, but Margaret remains a theatrical creation who, if not glorious, nonetheless anticipates Cleopatra and Lady Macbeth. Her marriage to Henry creates more dissension in the court and alienates the Duke of Gloucester, even as it elevates the scheming Duke of Suffolk, which is where Shakespeare leaves us as the play finally limps to an end. Looking back from the curtain call, it's easy to see the method behind Shakespeare's madness. In order to get Margaret to the court, he had to get Suffolk to Margaret, which meant getting Talbot and Joan of Arc to clang swords on the fields of France. The reason we have such a hard time watching Henry VI Part One is because these machinations are as apparent as those of a car made of glass. In Richard II and Henry IV Part One, Shakespeare will show that he learned his lessons. There, the pieces are moved into place for later stories in a much more seamless and thrilling way. But for now, Shakespeare was still a student. He's learning some hard lessons. And, as we shall see, there's still a few more to come. So this is the part of the podcast where I talk about productions of the show that I've discussed and where you can find them on film. Productions of Henry VI Part One are curiosities rather than staples of the theater world, and if you want a traditional rendering of the script, your best bet is the BBC production from 1983. Actually, that's more or less your only bet, because I have yet to stumble upon another version on film that is faithful to the text. The truth is, though, this made-for-TV movie is for purists and the curious. It's a bit of a slog, and the production values are, to say the least, fairly bizarre. There's a cartoonish aspect to the design, which the critics of the day suggested lent the production air of Verfum Dung's effect, which is a very fancy way of saying that the design was intended to remind you at all times that you were watching a play. I'm not entirely convinced it works, but the text is all there, so if you like your Talbot uncut, then this is the production for you. However, since most people have neither the time or the patience for such theatrical slogs, I'm going to give you two other options to choose from. The first is the excellent BBC miniseries An Age of Kings, a 15-episode serial from 1960 that features all the history plays in their chronological succession. Now, you can get this all on DVD, and I'll leave links to that on the show page. Now here, Henry VI Part One is cut down to a single hour, which seems to be how people like it. Most people, that is, except for the guy who adapted the play for the 2016 miniseries, The Hollow Crown. Now this was the second adaptation of the history plays by the BBC, and this time they whittled Henry VI Part One down to 45 minutes. So a quarter of the way through the very first episode, we slide gently into Henry VI Part Two. Now, if I had to choose, I'd go for this version, because as I've said, while I admire Henry VI Part I, I don't actually enjoy watching it, and I suspect neither will you. The Hollow Crown is by far your best introduction to the history plays, especially if you've never seen them performed, and they ground the series in solid reality, adding in all those bloody battles that Shakespeare had to keep off stage. 
Be warned, though, they amalgamate a lot of characters, and in this case, they turn the Duke of Suffolk and Somerset into one person. So if you are writing an essay on Henry VI, I don't advise using the Hollow Crown as your only guide. The real standout is Sophie Ocanito as Queen Margaret, who enjoys herself as the she-wolf of France and takes us all along for the ride. And I have no doubt I'll be talking about her again when I get to Henry VI Part Two and Part Three. So that's it for Henry VI Part One. The Henry VI plays get better from here, mostly because Shakespeare starts becoming a better writer, and we can look forward to more Game of Thrones-style machinations from behind the scenes. In Henry VI Part Two, you can look forward to adultery, witchcraft, pirates, and battle scenes involving characters you actually care about. But all that's for next time. So until then, you can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in the iTunes store or somewhere else in the wilds of the internet. If you want to leave a comment or want to see notes about this episode, you can go to the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash unbarred. And hey, while you're there, why not stick around the website and check out the other things I do? You can get get a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. It is the story of two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Henry V actually plays a huge part in that novel, and I'll talk more about that when I get to that episode. That's it for this week. Three plays down, 35 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.